the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Bird Market Minute. You're listening to Rob Black and Your Money on AM 1220 KDOW and iHeart Radio Station. Welcome back again, Rob Black and Your Money. I'm Rob Black. So Robert Schiller, pretty smart guy, says the housing market could take 50 years to fully recover. Now, you can listen to this station, you can talk to your friends, your family, and everyone seems obsessed with real estate. I like real estate. I like stocks, I like bonds. I like artwork from dead people. I like commodities. In the world of stocks, I don't just like them big. I like some small ones, too. The U.S. economy is doing pretty well. I want some small caps because that cuts down my international risk. U.S. economy has trillions of dollars of deficit. I want some international because I know there's some growth to be had in Korea and Australia and Asia. So from housing starts to home prices... Economist Robert Schiller said there's a lot of positive signs. And again, you and I could talk real estate and, hey, I own pieces of real estate. I feel pretty comfortable owning real estate. And yet, it could take 50 years to fully recover. Now, again, when I have a home, let's say it's a million-dollar home that's paid off, I'm actually losing thirty dollars to $40,000 a year in buying potential. In large part because historically, inflation's averaged 3 to 4%. So my million-dollar home every year that's paid off actually loses me 3 to 4%. Now, if it goes up 3 to 4%, it's a push, right? Real estate's not going to average 6% returns or 10% returns. It's not going to happen. It did in the 2000s in large part because of speculation. There's all sorts of different markets out there. I like to buy my real estate in towns where we can support that type of growth. So let me go explain this a little bit more, if I may. Um, how do I say this in, in real terms? I like investing in college towns in real estate. I like investing in towns that have good hospitals, towns that have really close to jobs. You know, for instance, if you think Apple's going to go out of business, you probably wouldn't want to own real estate in Cupertino because there's a lot of employees that get their real estate close to where they work. And with that said, if you could afford to buy into that market, there's probably some employees who might be able to take it over for you. You know, investing in education is something that we keep hearing the political leaders say and I'm trying to educate you in real estate education college towns are a cute way of investing there's always going to be built in rental demand and again here I'm saying investing the home that I live in is a liability I expect to lose money on the home that I live in because I bought it with super low interest rates I expect inflation to eat away some of my equity my principal I'm fine with that. It's a cost of living. I don't have to pay rent. I pay rent to myself. Now, I own some rentals for a business, and I own a rental for College Town. So someone else is paying that mortgage down. Yeah, I'm still losing inflation, but someone else is paying it. Now, the down part is, is College Towns, oh, you know, those tenants aren't exactly the best. 
So you have to do a super deposit. You know that. I know that. You have to have a, you know, a clause that says you can check on it. So there's an investment versus a liability. Someone else is paying your mortgage. Now, again, I know everyone's in love with real estate, and that's fine and dandy. But in retirement, I'm going to have more than you because I know that it takes capitalism to support real estate. I know that. You have to have companies making profits because if they're making profits, they're hiring. If they're hiring, people are paying their mortgages. People are speculating about real estate. So you have to have a healthy stock market. You have to have a healthy capital system. So one thing that I want to educate you on is, you know, college towns are great investments. They're great concepts. Like University of Pittsburgh, Carnegie Mellon, all in the area of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, not too shabby. One of the colleges has 28,000 students. One of them has 12,000. So you got typically right there potentially 40,000 renters. How many of them live on campus? This easy stuff to figure out. Pittsburgh has the lowest break-even horizon on a list of college cities that you can actually make money in as far as real estate goes. Enrollment at Carnegie Mellon is up 15% over the last five years. That's demand that's outpacing growth of some markets, right? You get that. So, again, the average home there, $86,000. Would I tell you to do it? No. How about Riverside, California, which I refer to as an armpit? It is not attractive. It smells. Average home there, 191000 but they got 20,000 students. Um, 19% jump of students is expected by the year 2025. They expect to have 25,000 students, which is a 19% jump from where they are at 20,000 students right now. So can I make a case for that? Absolutely, because there's a lot of people moving there. Tucson, Arizona, University of Arizona, average home 110,000. It's got a very young population as well, pro cycling teams and triathletes who train in the city. It's got five mountain ranges. There's things to do. It was named a best town, a hottest playground in a magazine called Outside Magazine. Ohio, Oxford, Ohio, Miami University is there. Miami of Ohio, that always messes me up. I just don't like it. Because when you think Miami, you think Florida, not Miami of Ohio. Freshmen and, pop and sophomores have to live on campus, and that lessens the rental pool. But enrollments of up to 9.2%, again, that's a growth trend that you could try to take advantage of. Average house in Oxford, Ohio, 148000 I like Charleston, South Carolina. And these are all cities that I've screened for potential, quote-unquote, investments. Minneapolis, St. Paul, Flagstaff, Arizona, Madison, Wisconsin. 42,000 students in Madison, Wisconsin. The dormitory situation, they said, quote, we don't plan to expand capacity. So they don't have excess inventory. One city that I really like is Eugene, Oregon, University of Oregon. Very, very passionate students. And in Eugene, you can climb raft, bike, kayak, many, 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 many things to do there. The ratio of students to online campus units is about 6 to 1. And enrollment's expected to rise. Only slightly. Corvallis, Oregon. Irvine, California. University of California, Irvine. Again, different. Some of them are $600,000 houses. Some of them are $100,000 houses. But that's how you invest in rentals in college towns. You do a lot of homework. I'm Rob Black. Hi, everyone. I'm Rob Black. I'm really proud of what I do. I made a lot of my money in my 20s and early 30s. I don't have to work till the day I die. It's going to be ironic because I'll probably work till the day I die. Isn't it ironic? Actually, it's not. It would just suck. 
I know you're saying, did you just do an Alanis Morissette impression? No, that was actually my impression of a Canadian. Hey. I recently saw something that was kind of cute. And again, I'm just, this is cute, but there's a learning lesson here. It was an article called Dear Apple, I'm Leaving You. It's written by a guy named Ed Conway, who's the economics editor for Sky News. The author of the book, The Real Economy. And he goes, Dear Tim, there's no easy way to put this. I'll just come right out and say it. I'm leaving you. It's been great, but it's over. I figured the least I could do is explain my decision in full. I'd like to think it might help protect from a nasty breakup like this in the future. I've been with you for 13 years now. Ever since 1999. Perhaps you've forgotten I was a spotty teenager. What's a spotty teenager? Let me stop right there. Pimples? Ugh. What a bad self-image if you refer to yourself as a spotty. Unless, of course, you're in a Dr. Seuss book. Then it makes sense. So to go on, he's writing a letter to Apple, Tim Cook, why he's breaking up with them. And he goes, I bought one of your cute little translucent iBooks. Slowly but surely, I painted most parts of my technological life in a bright shade of Apple. Let's see, I've owned two iMacs, a number of iBooks, countless MacBooks. I currently got two on the go, for some unknown reason. An iPhone for almost five years, an iPad since the very beginning, iPods, iPod Touches, iPod Nanas. I've had them all. I've even invested in an Apple TV, and wait for it, a G4 Power Mac Cube. Yes, that was me. Which, for the record, I like to jog. Um, and I'm going off, to, off topic here, off letter. Another day I ran right next to a... A uh, Mac Q in the yard sale, and if I had the five dollars they wanted, I would have like ponied up because it worked. Plus, that's a very very rare item. Okay, so back to the letter to Tim Cook. Like millions of others, I really believe the hype. I never thought I would utter these words, but here goes. I'm leaving you. I've already traded in my iPhone for a Samsung. Now this is the point that I expected to say, but 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 it's not true. It's me. It's not you, Apple. It's me. But I can't, because the truth is, it's not me, it's you. Now, I know you won't, don't like lists, but I'm going to come up with a list for you. So this is a letter about a guy who's been with Apple for 13 years. And I own shares of Apple. And I think this is so well written and so clever, but so on point that it has to be talked about. He goes, I, I, iOS 6. Yes, I know I'm hardly the first one to mention this, but it doesn't make it any less valid as a complaint. It's the first reason why I'm breaking up with you. It's truly a truly awful update. I'm usually ready to forgive one or two niggles. What's a niggle? N-I-G-G-L-E-S? Never heard that word before, but okay, I'm off topic. In a new iteration of an operating system. They're usually outweighed by the improvements. In this case, I can honestly not think of one single new feature in any way that enhances the phone. Every change you've made is negative. The map application is utterly horrendous. You must have known this is amongst the most commonly used of all functional parts of a smartphone, and that to change it quite so substantially would be seriously disruptive. Yes, I know you've magnanimously urged users to use alternatives, but the problem is that even if I try to use Google Maps on your Safari browser, I can't avoid that fact that crappy iOS maps are integrated into every other geographically reliant app. I know I'm a pragmatic. I suspect you might give future users the option to change this, but the fact is... That's not the only disconcertingly disastrous issue with iOS. Take iTunes Match. In the previous operating system, I could download any individual song into my iTunes Match library so I could listen to it overseas without data or when in the tube, the tube being the London subway. Now, your dreadful new operating system will only let me download whole albums and then won't let me delete them afterwards. So my iPhone gets clogged up with stuff before arbitrarily deleting precious chunks of data when it reaches capacity. This is so well written. He goes on to say, you know, there's some other problems. Facebook integration, you know, yeah, that's cute, but you should have done that years ago. Podcasts are dismal and buggy. So reason number two I'm leaving you, Tim, and Apple, is you've lost it. I realize it's going to sound harsh, but there's no use sugaring that pill. I'll be specific. For most of our relationship, there were two things I could rely on from Apple. First was that your products worked far better than PCs. Windows PCs would get viruses. They'd be difficult to fix. They would break down and leave you tearing your hair out. The second thing is that although you weren't necessarily the most innovative company out there, you just did it right. You weren't the first company to make a smartphone, Nokia communicator, before you. But you were the first to do it well. The same goes for MP3 players, for tablets, for family photo software, for media management. 
you were never about innovation. You were about damn good execution and flair. Not anymore. This is going to sound awful, but I can't think of any big product you've reimagined well since the iPad. And that was almost three years ago. iCloud, not as good as Dropbox. And actually more confusing. FaceTime, slick, but still pales in comparison to Skype. iMessages, most annoyingly particular when it sends messages twice. Siri, oh. Safari, not as good as Chrome or Firefox. Plus, my Mac simply doesn't work that well anymore. The contacts on my iPhone don't seem to sync very well with my laptop. Okay, so that's point two of they've lost it. And point one was the operating system. I can't say that I really disagree with anything this guy's saying. Number three, as far as reasons, he's dumped Apple. And this is really a beautifully well-written email letter. And if anyone wants a copy of it because you can't find it, it's written by a guy named um, Ed Conway. And he works uh, as the economics editor for Sky News. So if you were to Google Ed Conway Sky News, you'll find this. Number three, he says, you're not cool anymore. This is why I'm dumping you. It's true. It's not merely that I have to put up with your products being used by my mother. The fact is Apple used to be edgy. It used to be associated with counterculture. It used to be rebellious. I liked that. I liked the fact that you were uncompromising. When you introduced IMAX, you ditched the serial ports and insisted everyone have to use USB ports, despite the fact that there was approximately one printer in the world which worked with USB. You were the first to ditch disk drives and DVD drives. I'm not alone, but I like the way you refused to put flash on your devices. Plus, I like the fact that unlike Google and pretty much every other big company out there, your fellow execs would never go navel-gazing networking conferences like the World Economic Forum in Davos. There was something really cool about that attitude. These days, you're all too ready to compromise. You decided to include an SD slot in your MacBooks. Why? I can't imagine the Apple of old ever doing this. And in compromising, you become too complex. I remember the first iMac. It was the first computer you really didn't have to have an instruction manual for. When iOS came out, I found myself having to download the manual and wade through its 156 pages. 156 pages to find out what you've done to the settings I used to use. Apple used to be about purity, which in turn made its products simpler and more reliable. Somewhere along the line, this got lost. Apple under Steve Jobs used to be about purity. When he wasn't at the helm in the 90s, it also made a lot of compromises I'm talking about. So finally, you sent a legal letter to Samsung where you failed to get their tablets banned. I challenge anyone to read and not conclude you're bitter, chippy, and frankly, a little unpleasant. I love this. It sounds like he's really breaking up. Number four on the list is you're screwing us. You might be surprised to learn that the final straw for me wasn't the Maps debacle. It was iOS 6. It wasn't even the fact that you're not cool anymore. I'm not cool anymore, so I shouldn't expect you to be cool anymore. The final straw was when you decided to replace the dock on our bottom of our iPhones and iPads with a new lightning dock. I've heard your explanations. It'll allow your device to be thinner. It's a faster connector. Blah, blah, blah. I don't buy it. The main reason you did this was so that you could bring your products out in ever shorter product cycles, planned obsolescence. You're aware that the more frequently something is out of date, the more often we'll have to buy more Apple stuff. Now, I was willing to put up with that when I, it, it felt as if there were genuinely progress between iterations, when there was a shred of aspiration about it. But by the time you unveiled the lightning connector, I wasn't so sure. It wasn't a eureka moment. I realized that you've been working your way here for years, that you've been basically setting us up so that we have to buy more of your product, more of your support product. Number five on the list was, I don't need you anymore. That's right, I've realized it's been a revelation. A couple years back, I couldn't envision it today without my iPhone. But today it strikes me as, I might just be as happy with one of your rivals. How do I know? Well, the truth is, I haven't been entirely honest with you. I did spend a couple months with someone else last year. Don't get mad. I was between iPhones, and I filled the lonely, miserable time with an HTC Android phone. And while I tried to ignore it at the time, the fact is, it was pretty good. There were some niggles, which again, that must be English for something. I hope I'm not saying a dirty word. Niggles? And there were a few annoyances, but we got along surprisingly well. And I'll get on pretty well with it again, because the fact is, Tim, I'm leaving you for Android. I can get everything I need from a phone from them as well. My email, my messages, my apps that work, my contacts, they're stored with Google anyway, and that integrates far better than into your Android phone. Evernote, Instapaper, WhatsApp, my tube, timetables, and bus times. I'll probably ditch iTunes match in favor of Amazon CloudPlay or Google Drive. And frankly, good riddance after the way you've treated us mobile users of the service. I'll miss some of the apps, I'm sure. Reader, 
name one. I'll miss the hundreds of text messages sitting on my iPhone. I'll miss, actually, I can't think of anything else right now. I'll hang on to my iPad for the time being. I'll certainly keep the MacBook Air, and I'm not quite ready to quit Windows yet. No, I'm not quite ready to get, return to Windows. So don't take it personally. It helps inspire you to make better and bolder products. This need not be forever. You can win me back. Reinvent the TV like you reinvented the phone. Revolutionize finance. Overhaul the home entirely. Think different, as your predecessor Steve Jobs used to say. Perhaps the problem is you're not the same person anymore. You're not Steve, perhaps. Either way, I'm tired of settling for mediocrity. Goodbye. Yours affectionately, Ed. It's a fantastic article about dumping Apple. And people do have a relationship with their products. I like every point that he made from an investment standpoint. The story was well said. This guy named Ed Conway. He's with Sky Magazine. Sky News. I just went on and on about a smartphone. and What do I use my smartphone for? Stuff that isn't all that smart. Checking the weather. Probably my number one thing. Is it a good day to run or a good day to hit the gym? So that's important to me. I use it for maps and traffic. Remember the days where we used to buy maps? That's a business that's gone. I guess for some people it's not. Um, but how much more? You know, angry words gets tiring quickly. So let's talk anything you want to talk about. I am so easy, in my opinion, to talk to. You don't have to be shy. You can drop me an email, rob at robblack.com. Rob at robblack.com. You can email me, rob at robblack.com. You can twit, tweet me. My handle is Rob Black Show. My YouTube is Rob Black Show. I put up eight videos a week. I tweet ooh, 15 messages. So, election year tips, being your own fund manager, tax planning for Facebook. You know, what Uncle Sam's doing, different ways of getting income in retirement. I think you want a diversified high-yield portfolio during retirement is a basic concept. You never want to dip into principal. Some people would say get three years of cash and go that direction. It depends on how much you have, and it depends on how much you spend. There's a scene from the Tarzan movies where Lord Greystoke shows his estate to his grandson and says, Someday, young man from the jungle, this will all be yours. Live off the income from the land, but don't sell any of it. Don't dip into principal. It was a beautiful formula. Back in 1985, you could have lived off the principal from treasuries because they paid 10% back then. Now today, less than 1% in most cases. Eh, less than 2% in most cases. Inflation was 4% from in the 80s. Now, it, you know, 4% and a 10% inflation... 10% income off 4% inflation? Yes, please. The real yield on a 10-year treasury now is 0%. Subtract income taxes, which you will owe if your bonds are outside a tax-favored account, and you actually get a negative number. So there's all sorts of ways of getting income in retirement. Again, your income, you're going to want to try to get it somewhere around the 5 to 6 7% range, or you're going to want to pull out money and grow your app. Principal, your, your principal not dedicated towards income. Your your equity growth of seven to ten percent. There's multiple ways of doing this. Like I'm selling, it's not so like junk bonds current yield seven point three percent. Vanguard's high yield corporate bond fund pays seven point three. If you qualify for the lowest cost shares, you have to have fifty thousand dollars investments. You know that rich income stream is accompanied by a constant erosion of capital, though. Every now and then your principal is lost in a bankruptcy. If you had put $100,000 into the Vanguard High Yield when it opened 33 years ago, and you spent all the income, i.e. you didn't reinvest any of it, you'd, have only, you'd only have $57,900 of principal now. So over those 33 years, you had lost $43,000. But you also would have had a very high yield. So the average annual shrinkage of principal in a high yield junk bond is about 1.6%. 
So the 7.3% you get in dividend yields, actually, the total return when you factor it is a lot less. It's going to be half of 7.3%. So you think you're getting 7.3%, but you're also eroding slowly but surely. High coupon bonds, 5.2%. Tax exempt bonds, 4.3%. High yield stocks, you can get 3 to 6%. I like high yield stocks as part of a strategy. Consolidated Edison, Credit Suisse, Chevron, all yield between 3 and 6%. Verizon, AT&T. So these are things you have to really like put out there and say, you know, this is something I need to think about. And every year it's going to be different. So you can't just buy it once and be done with it. The inflation levels now, as they change, you're going to want to change your portfolio. I don't know. Mortgage rates are at you know incredible lows, yet a lot of home buyers are shunning loans. And putting 100% down, you're seeing a lot of people wanting to own their home. A lot of people put 100% down so they can basically say that, hey, I'm getting 0% at the bank, so why not pay off the house? It makes absolutely no sense to borrow, right? Wrong. Borrowing doesn't readjust for inflation. And that's what's important. Your payment doesn't readjust higher as inflation heats up. You know, in foreclosure world, yeah, bringing more money to the table is a great idea if you're going to buy that way because it's so competitive. You know, baby boomers versus Generation X versus Generation Y. Generation Y has seen nothing but tough economies. That's going to hurt in the long term. Generation X saw booming economies, saw that greed was good. And they've hit a stumbling block, but they still probably think greed is good. Boomers, who are the hippies of the day on hate street, free love, you know, now they're all basically working until the day they die. They're fighting that their jobs are getting eliminated based on age discrimination. So they're taking severance pay. What we think we're getting versus what we get, the difference between those two, it makes people bitter. Baby boomers are 78 million Americans born between 46 and 64. They're used to being coddled. Music and culture changed with them. Universities made way for them. Corporations embraced them. But all of the things are against them now as they're heading towards more gray hairs. You have to understand that things change. And as an investor, you have to change. I'm Rob Black. You listen to Rob Black and your money. You can find me online, robblack.com. Tweet, Rob Black Show. YouTube, Rob Black Show. Facebook group page, I Hate Rob Black. Tune in weekly to the Financial Safari and get that common sense approach. Locations on strong customer traffic, shares up 11%. Stephanie Shelton, CNBC Radio. AM 1220 KDOW traffic. This Bay Area update is brought to you. Welcome in. Rob Black and your money. I'm Rob Black talking all things financial, money, investing, and much, much more. What's on your financial mind? Anything you want to talk about? I'm good with any of it. You want to talk economic events? You want to talk story stocks? Story stocks could be names like Starbucks. It's got a great story. You know Starbucks, right? You've heard of them. They're on every corner in America. They've just come up with new product. One of the things that was a negative for them is that cured coffee machine. And you started seeing companies like McDonald's selling single cup coffee that was pretty damn good. How did they do it? When you take a look at Starbucks and their their financials, it's stunning. When you take a look at their competition, you see McDonald's, you see Nestle, you see Dunkin' Brands. 
They're the world's number one specialty coffee retailer. 17,000 coffee shops, 40 countries. Howard Schultz just recently talked about opening stores in China. Clearly a growth frontier. As very, very poor people start to become poor people or middle class. Schultz basically trains his stores to, to throw an event. When they do conference calls there, they try to cater towards bring your mom and dad. Their stores are geared towards families. It's a nice family meeting space because it's a different culture than the United States. In the United States, you just see one single person in line because they need their coffee. They need that jolt. So they sell roasted beans, they sell coffee accessories, they sell teas. A lot of people don't know this, but they own Tazo Tea, which was a massive, crazy good investment for them. Seattle's Best Coffee gave them the Seattle angle that could have been used against them. Pretty smart. Um, They're in grocery stores. They've licensed their brand for other food and beverage products. You know, when you go into a Safeway now, you'll typically see a mom or two pushing the cart around with coffee. It's a story. Do you see? I mean, do you see how easy it is just to ramble about them for a long period of time? And I've even said one thing about their financials. For instance, in 2009, they made 9.7 billion in revenue, then 10.7 billion in 2010, then 11.7 in 2011. Their gross profits climbed from 5.4 billion to 6.2 billion to 6.7 billion. Their operating income's gone from 500 million to 1.4 billion, million, billion to 1.7 billion. Their net income has quadrupled from 390 million to 945 million to 1.2 billion. How about cash flow? Cash flow has gone from 250 million in 2009 to 600 million in 2010 to 1.1 billion in 2011. Like, is there a metric that you don't like here? Cash at the end of the year from six hundred million to one point one billion to one point one billion. Their balance sheet's stunning. Like girlfriend kind of stunning. Like I'm in awe. You are a goddess to me. Their shares outstanding have only climbed from seven hundred and forty million to seven hundred and forty six million. So they're not diluting shareholders in any way, shape, or form. Like there's not a metric that I'm looking at that I, I don't like. Their credit rating is, is good. Like, find one that's negative. Every now and then there's even medical studies that say Starbucks will uh, keep you alive, like fight cancer. Like, thank you? What are you supposed to say to that? It's a story stock, and it's a good story, and it's tough to, like, beat it up. I have no problem with you owning the shares of that company. I, what I want you to do, though, is I want you to buy a little bit of it every year. Not just once, every year. Um, Visa is a story stock. If you take a look at their numbers, payment volume growth on a constant dollar basis, growing. Six plus percent payment volume growth on a constant dollar basis, growing six plus percent. Like, you know the story about Visa. You've known it your whole life. Now, again, some story stocks don't work forever, but some of them don't get you in trouble either. You know, quickly on a Microsoft, every PC sold, had an operating system that they developed. Not every, but it was like 90% for a long period of time. That's an impressive number. Okay, so their stock hasn't done much because they've been branching out into new services that didn't necessarily work for them, like search. They lose money in that area. But at least in the last 10 years, it hasn't hurt you. It's gone sideways. Right? Right? And sometimes sideways is up because you're also getting a dividend along the way. When you take a look at someone like uh, 
Visa that I just talked about. Who are the competitors? Start thinking in your head. American Express, MasterCard, Discover. Heard a commercial today for Discover paying you about 5% back. That's why I like Visa. Visa's not paying you 5% back. They have no credit risk. They're not lending money. They're just transacting. Paper or plastic? I choose plastic. Visa operates the world's largest consumer payment system, ahead of MasterCard and American Express. 1.7 billion credit card in circulation. 1.7 billion credit cards in circulation. They offer debit cards, internet payment systems, value storing smart cards, traveler's checks. They connect uh, financial institutions around the world. There's a company called Square that... uh, could certainly hurt them. They're offering a payment platform that is similar, but more 21st century. And I think you're going to continue to see that try to be a trend. At some point in time, certainly Apple with their iPhones and Google with the near-field communication technology They're going to do everything they can to be a player, so to speak, in transactions. A company like Verizon would love if you paid for things using your account, which you could do in some limited ways right now. So always, you know, a story stock has to be backed up with some fundamentals. One of the reasons I I read the fundamentals to you about... uh, who was I re- a Starbucks? It was to show you that the story is good, but the, show me the money. And showing you the money was there just as well. So please never discount that. you got to see the story, but you also got to see the sizzle. The steak's good. The sizzle's good. You're in pretty good terms. You're, you're doing okay. You're listening to me, Rob Black. I'm Rob Black. Find me at Twitter, Rob Black Show. Facebook group page, I hate Rob Black. Talking money, talking investing, talking personal finance. I'll find some good content for you right around the corner on the Wall Street Business Network. AM 1220 KDOW traffic. This Bay Area update is brought to you by Garmin. Westbound 24 right after Pleasant Hill Road. An earlier crash has been cleared off the roadway. CHP's on the scene, but traffic has been backed up onto 680. And southbound 680, that's been jammed from 242. South 880 and Hayward right after Dyer and Whipple. We have an accident that's in the center divide. We are looking at delays coming out of the San Leandro Drive from 238. Headed out towards San Jose, northbound 280 SO from Guadalupe Parkway towards Saratoga. Avenue. At the Bay Bridge approach, traffic is backed up from 880. Meanwhile, westbound 80 is slow from San Pablo Dam Road. In Nevada, South 101 is heavy from Highway 37 to North San Pedro Road. Hate traffic? Don't be a hater. Get a Garmin Newbie with subscription-free HD digital traffic and avoid it with updates as often as every 30 seconds. Drive with Garmin, the most trusted name in GPS. For more traffic information, log on to SigAlert.com. I'm Karina Velasquez with your Bay Area Traffic. Sacramento doesn't work for California families. It works for the big corporations. Back to Rob Black and your money on AM 1220 KDOW. We're in the 21st century. And we've got to start acting like it. You know, I was telling you about story stocks. And we can find them, but you have to follow the numbers. You know, I made the mistake last break of not finishing my thought on Visa paper, plastic. We choose plastic or a plastic nation. Do they have some competition? Yeah, and then we should be aware of that. But look at the numbers. 2010, $8 billion in revenues. 2011, $9 billion in revenues. 2012, $10.4 billion. Gross profits jumped from $6.4 billion to $7.3 billion to $8.2 billion. Those are all growing numbers. Is our economy growing like that? Are you, is your income growing like that? A corporation, Visa is a human being. As Defined by the law on corporations. If you own one share of Visa, that's cool by me because it's growing your revenue. It's like, imagine Visa being your girlfriend. I'm sweet on you, Visa, but she's sweet on me. She grows her profit from $6 billion, $6.4 billion in 2010 to $8.2 billion. 
Um, thank you. You know, don't fall in love with the story. Facebook has a great story, but the numbers aren't there yet. The insiders aren't done selling yet. It doesn't mean you're going to win, but it's going to damn well help your chances if you look at the numbers. So I'm done with Visa. Visa, I'm done with you. There's a guy named... No, 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 no. I know where I want to go with this. I can go that direction, but I'm not going to. So I started by saying 21st century, right? We're in the 21st century. You know, millionaires devote almost a tenth of their fortunes to non-financial assets, arts and collectibles. New millionaires and new billionaires from China, India, and Russia, they bid up the value of the artists at eye-popping rates. Living in dead, art can work well in a portfolio. I take great pride in being a diversified human being. I know at times you're like, you must be all money. I'm not. I love the money aspect, but I, the art aspect, I love to paint, love to draw. It helps my finance side of the brain work. There's a painter named Christopher Wool. Since 2000, his artwork is up 2,400%. Christopher Wool is a painter best known for what the New York Times called as a big sign-like word pictures with vaguely alarming messages like fool. So it's big letter F, big letter O, big letter O, big letter L. It's born in 1955. He's still alive, so he's still making it. Lives in New York. Saeed Raza, who was born in Bombay. Very avant-garde from India. His art's incredibly influenced by the colors of India, his home country. His artwork's up 2,600% since 2000. Lives in Paris. Lucien Freud, British painter known for portraits, of which I'm not crazy about. He recently died. Modern art. It had a lot of abstract in it. Like, um, if there was a fat person, there was, like, more fat on that person than there should be. So it became very abstract. He was the grandson of Sigmund Freud. His art's up 2,700% since 2000. Now he's dead, he's dead. I fancy to guess that his artwork's even a little bit better. An artist born in China named Chu Te Chon. Moved from traditional Chinese painting to some more abstract when he moved to Paris in 1955. His artwork's up 3,100% since 2010. Julian Stasnak, a painter and printmaker from Poland. He lost the use of his right arm during World War II in a Siberian concentration camp. He immigrated to the United States in 1950. His early work prompted critics to coin the term op art for works that used optical illusions. His work up only 3,300% since 2000. I don't have to go through like every name out there that's been huge winners. But again, it teaches you that assets are important. And it doesn't have to be stocks, bonds, and real estate. And you've had some great returns since 2000 if you knew what to look for. The top artist, and again, this is a great date advice. Get out there and see the art world. A lot of museums have a free day once a month. Take a girl. I mean, trust me, walk around and say, "What? that makes me feel this. From an investor standpoint, I tend to like the smaller shows like San Jose. And again, San Jose's got an issue with San Francisco, and I know that. San Francisco is so cocky, they refer to it as the city. You know, what's Oakland? What's... Is, are they not cities, too? But the top artist since 2000 is a person named Sanyu. Sanyu was born in China in 1901. Sanyu was one of the first Chinese artists to study in Paris. He moved there in 1921. He's referred to as the Chinese Matisse. Very colorful, modernist paintings. And if you don't know what modernist is... 
diversify yourself. Pry yourself away from that television set. He died in Paris in 1966. His artwork since 2000 up ah, only 11,000%. Are you chasing? Hell no, you're not chasing. Some of these artists are, are dead and they can't make any more of it. And they've already proven a value. So I don't know. I say get out there and diversify yourself. Get out there and, and look for things. Don't buy dogs playing uh, poker. Be a little bit more classy than that. Stay classy, San Diego. Coming up, I'm going to talk a little Nobel investing. The Nobel Prize came from someone named Nobel. And there's a Nobel Foundation which wrote about finances that have some very, very powerful concepts that you, the average person, could use. Alfred Bernhard Noble was an inventor. He made a tiny fortune in dynamite and other chemicals. When he died at 63, a little bit before 1900, the childless bachelor left behind a hand-scrawled will, leaving most of his estate to a new foundation that would reward scientific and cultural achievement. It took five years for the legal and operational battles of this murky document to be resolved. The foundation opened up in 1901. And coming up, I'm going to go over some of the concepts of what he says is important when it comes to savings, making it last for as long as possible. The savings that he had at retirement or at death, 1896, is still alive and well-funded today. What did he do right? 100-plus years? That's advice worth looking into. Find me at Twitter, Rob Black Show. Find me at Facebook, group page, I Hate Rob Black. Find me on YouTube, Rob Black Show. Find me online, robblack.com. Drop me an email, rob at robblack.com. Welcome back in. I'm Rob Black, talking all things financial, money, investing, and more. Let's go to a phone caller, and I don't have my call screen up. My bad. Uh, maybe I do. Yeah, we do. I do. Domingo, Castro Valley. Hey, Rob. How you doing, buddy? Doing well, buddy. Good. Look, man, I, I love your show. Hey, uh, I, I own a lot of dividend stocks right now. I have, um, um, like, Intel and Energy Transfer Partner, the dividend date, is like due today on Energy Transfer Partner, and I, I, I'm about to buy more. But if I buy it today, will I get that dividend? Because once you buy it, if I do, my order goes in. Don't you have like a three-day holding period? So then I would miss it. Today's the ex-dividend date. Yeah, you're not you're not going to outsmart the system. First and foremost, a lot of people think that they could buy it the last second, get the dividend, and sell. Um, let me explain. Let me explain ex-dividend dates. And thanks for the call, dude, man. Cuckoo-cachoo man. Have you ever bought a stock only to find out later that you were not entitled to the next cash or stock dividend? To determine whether you should get the cash in these dividends, you need to look at two very important dates. And these dates are referred to as record date, which is also known as, aka known as date of record, and the ex-dividend date. When a company declares a dividend, it sets a record date, a record date, when you must be on the company's books as a shareholder to receive the dividend. Companies use the date to determine who has sent proxy statements, financial reports, and other information. Once that date of record is set, the stock exchange typically fixes the ex-dividend date. The ex-dividend date is normally set for stocks two business days before the record date. So if you purchase a stock on the ex-dividend date or after, you will not receive the next payment. Instead, the seller gets the dividend. If you purchase before the ex-dividend date, you get the dividend. So as the, ex, as the easiest way of explaining this is let's say the dividend is going to be due on September 10th. You have to be... on record by the 10th of August and if you excluded the 8th, 6th of August. So again, let me try to explain this in slow terms. 
Let's say Apple declares a dividend payable on September 10. Apple also announces that shareholders on record of, on the books on or before August 10 are entitled to the dividend. The stock would go exclude dividend, ex-dividend, two days before that record date. It's very, very complicated. The ex-dividend dates typically set, like I said, two business dates before the record date. So the record date falls on a Tuesday, for instance, excluding weekends and holidays. The dividend date is typically two days before that. So in this case, it would be on a Friday. With significant dividend, the price of the stock could move up or down. So, yeah, you may get like a 10% yield, right? But the stock's going to move down 10%. Because part of one of the reasons the stock is paying that dividend is because they got cash. But when you value the company, you got to value it with the cash, or you exclude the cash. So my advice is, if you're going to buy dividends, don't buy it the last second, because it's not going to work out for you. What you get in income, you'll lose in principle. So don't try to be like outsmart the system. So... A stock trades ex-dividend or after ex-dividend. The person who owns security on the ex-dividend date will be awarded the payment, regardless of who currently holds it. The ex-date has been declared. The stock usually will drop in price between that and the expected dividend payout. So you're not going to outsmart the system. I know you want to, but it ain't going to be you who pulls it off. Um, so the last segment I talked about Nobel Prize the forever portfolio, something that's lasted basically forever. I don't know what a generation is defined as, but I can tell you that Alfred Noble died in 1896. He set up a foundation, and that foundation still does fabulously well. So, and that foundation lived through the stock market collapse in the 30s. It lived through the recent collapse. It's still alive and very well. So studying that portfolio can help you as an investor. It says that bonds are dangerous. Taxes are deadly. Spendable yield is low if you want to survive and hang on to your money. So he was a childless bachelor. Trust me, when you see pictures of Chuck Noble, Charles Noble, Who's Charles Noble? It's Alfred Noble. Alfred. I always get the names Alfred and Charles mixed up. But he's been able to have a foundation that rewards scientific and cultural achievement. That could be like you. You want to set up a foundation to reward you. Right? It was started worth $1.2 million in 1901, and it's still alive and well today. One problem was that an expected tax exemption did not come through for a long while. The other problem was that he had an instruction that the money be invested in safe securities. What does safe mean? Typically mortgages and bonds, right? Fixed income assets. They proved to be anything but safe during the last century's bouts with inflation. Now, the Noble Foundation saved itself by getting the rules changed. It won a tax exemption in 1946, and seven years later, permission to invest in stocks and real estate. So even though he wanted it to be incredibly safe, they had to alter it because it would have ran out of money. It was too safe to begin with. So the story here is that you should spend sparingly because his goal as a foundation was to give to spend X amount of dollars for various Nobel Prizes. It's a pretty cool concept. The foundation draws down about 4% of its assets every year. So it says, I'm going to pay myself 4% a year. I'm going to give away 4% in prize money every year. How is it still around? How did it not run out of money? Because it doesn't have money coming in. It doesn't have a job. So they got some corporate sponsors to pick up some of the ancillary expenses. Typically, a rule of thumb in financial planning is retirees can spend 4%. Interesting to note, Nobel Foundation, 4%. Retirees, 4%. That works for a 70-year-old. It doesn't sometimes work for someone who's 55 years old. The Nobel Foundation only put 23% of its money in cash and fixed income investments. The rest into stocks, bonds, 
No, the rest into stocks, real estate, hedge funds, and private equity. So only 23% of its money is in safety because it wants to pay out 4%. So you get dazzled by like the performance of treasuries. Treasuries do well when there's a drop in interest rates. If you own them. So if you own it outright and you're going to hold it for its remaining life, you know, if you bought a lot in the last couple of years, it's only expecting to get you at like a 2.9% return at best case scenario. And again, that's not going to survive that 4% payout. So you want to watch your tax bill. This is the big lesson from the Nobel Foundation. Do everything you can. Minimize the sums stuffed into tax-deferred accounts. No, maximize the sums put into tax-deferred accounts. Because your 401k, your 403b, your 457, anything that you put in, you're not paying federal taxes on. So you're already up. Let's say you're in the 20% tax bracket. You've already made 20% because the dollar in my hand right now, if I'm in the 20% tax bracket, was really probably a buck 20, a buck 23 because I had to pay taxes on it. But I could have put a buck 23 into my 401k. So learn to maximize stuff that goes into tax deferred accounts. Look at Mitt Romney and how well he did with that strategy. The other tax angle is to minimize the income from any assets held outside of a tax shelter. That means selling losers but not winners, holding stocks that provide appreciation rather than dividends, holding tax-favored assets like uh, real estates and master limited partnerships. You want to cut your costs. The Nobel Foundation is only paying less than six-tenths of a percent of its assets annually for money management. You as an investor should be in index funds until you're worth millions of dollars. You can own some stocks for sure, but that's the, the costs of doing transactions kills people. An index fund, one-tenth of one percent you can get now. Only 38% of Nobel's money is invested in Sweden. 62% allocated elsewhere. Now again, America... America, American. We tend to like fall in love with ourselves, so we overinvest in American companies. You shouldn't do that. And again, just looking back at what the Nobel Foundation has done, it's mostly about taxes and costs, and then getting market performance diversified with low cost elsewhere. Just throwing it out there for you. He certainly did well. The foundation that I want you to support, or the only favor that I ever ask on occasion, is join BeTheMatch.org. Too many people in America die from blood cancers, leukemia, lymphoma, sickle cell. So it's free. They send you a little swab. You swab your cheek. And if someone's dying, you get to save their life. You need to be a hero. BeTheMatch.org. BeTheMatch.org. Um... So easy to do. So too many people die. Too many people die that don't need to. Oh. I'm Rob Black. You can find me online, robblack.com, robblack.com. Twitter handle, Rob Black Show. Twitter handle, Rob Black Show. YouTube show, Rob Black Show. YouTube, Rob Black Show. Follow me. Subscribe to me. I'm free. Email me, rob at robblack.com. Oh my, one of the things I I laugh at and I appreciate enormously is you playing the lottery. It helps my schools, my state schools. Um, (laughs) The odds of you winning the big jackpot are so minuscule. There's a joke of win a million dollars. The million dollar Russian lottery. You win a dollar a year for one million years, right? Mega millions deal is a little bit better. But know that there's going to be a massive haircut if you do win. So tax collectors will come after you pretty quickly. So the amount that you think you're going to win isn't going to be the amount that you actually win. And that's where you start, first and foremost, understanding that math is tricky. You know, all you got to do is pick five numbers and, and, and one more number. 
you know, and you got to get the colored number correct. So the jackpot is tempting. You see 100 million, 200 million, 300 million, 400 million, 500 million. Your odds don't change just because no one's won in a while. Your odds are reset each and every time. You know, you see a $500 million lottery pot with 520 million tickets sold, 500, 600 million tickets sold, doesn't still mean anyone's going to win. How you get the odds in a lottery that does 1 through 56, and then you have to pick the perfect ball, is you multiply 56 times 55 times 54 times 53 times 52. And that's kind of crazy. And then you have to divide 5 times, 4 times, 3 times, 2 times to get to basically 1 in 3.8 million. And then you now multiply that by 46, because there's only 46 color balls, and you get odds of 1 in 175 million. Good luck to you. I know people do it, because I had a friend explain to me why he did it. He said, it's for a dollar I get a dream for about 72 hours that I'm going to have all the money in the world. Wow, right? He's that much of a loser in life that he boils it down for a dollar I get to dream for 72 hours. I'm like, thanks. You're paying for the school system. You're helping. And typically when I'm in, you know, maybe buying a six-pack, <clears throat> a six-pack of water, new, typically it's the just incredibly poor-looking people. They're not the members of the 32 Tooth Club, if you know what I'm saying. And it's sad. One hundred seventy-five million dollar chances, and they're throwing large sums of money. I see people buy ten tickets. I see people buy twenty tickets. It doesn't cut your odds exponentially because you buy exponentially more. It'll just cut it from one in one hundred seventy-five million to one in one hundred seventy-four nine hundred ninety-nine million. Like, blue. It doesn't help. So just know that going in. You're a fool. People who play lotteries are fools. One of the best things you could do is stop looking to get rich quickly. Forex stands for foreign exchange. And then there's buying puts and calls. Then there's the companies that sell red light, green light strategies. There's the guy who made millions on Wall Street who wants to teach you how to do it. Why does he want to do that? If I made millions on Wall Street, I want to hang out with young women. I don't want to teach you how to do it. I want to keep making millions of dollars and keep downgrading the wife, the the five-year downgrade, which is actually an upgrade. So you marry a 25-year-old woman when you're 25. Then you're 30 and you dump her and you marry a 25-year-old woman. Then you're 35, you dump her and marry a 25-year-old woman. If you have millions and millions of dollars, you live the playboy lifestyle. So why is a trader on Wall Street going to teach you this? Why is he buying commercial time to get you to come to him? You know, those infomercials aren't free. It's, just ask that simple question. If he had something, people would find him. The United States would, gut, would pay him. Get us out of this fiscal deficit thing. Do your magic. It just honestly, it's, it's a pipe dream. So I know people that bought the Iraqi dinar, and they're the dumbest people on the planet. They're the biggest fools. And they exist. Bless their pee-picking little hearts. For the haves, there have to be have-nots, and they're out there. There's a niche style of investing, which I like, ethical investing. You know, looking at workers' rights and human rights and socially responsible investing... Leaving an ethical le- legacy, ethical um, research. I'm I'm pro going ethical. I'm, I'm not saying that's the only way you should invest because trust me, I don't own Boeing. I don't own Boeing, but they make missiles. People think Boeing makes airplanes. They also make missiles. I would own Philip Morris International. I would own Altria because of the dividend. The dividend on Altria people are going to smoke. That's not ethical. But I can understand why people want to. There's a good website if you want to know. It's called Calvert 
dot com, C A L V E R T dot com. And uh, you can learn all about ethical investing. And I, I recommend you do. Like, the more you learn, the, the more prepared you will be. You can find me online, robblack.com. Don't forget, every first Wednesday of the month, I come to a local restaurant and I, I meet you. I want you to come out. I want you to see me. Um, it's called Black Wednesdays. It's the first Wednesday of every month. You can find out more information at kdow.biz, kdow.biz. Find me online at robblack.com. Tweet handle, Rob Black Show. It's a opinions expressed by Rob Black and his guests are not necessarily those of the Wall Street Business Network, this station, its management, owners, or advertisers, and should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. Always consult with three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.